1: Hello, welcome back to the show. It's been about a two-week hiatus since I've last published an episode. I've actually been recording a lot and editing more than usual, so plenty of content to be published in the coming weeks. Chaz is in Copenhagen, so that's why you haven't heard um, us on The Grit, but I'll be reconnecting with him next week, and then Scott and I are recording an episode of Spit tomorrow, so everything will be back on track. The US Open has invaded my hometown. So, hopefully, you're watching that online. The waves are tiny, but it's pretty amazing to watch those guys surf such poor conditions. And if you're in the area, if you're in Huntington Beach or Orange County at large, Friday night, Donald Brank and I are going to be hosting an informal meet and greet at the Vistla store in Pacific City. Dane Godowskis is going to come by and join us too. We want you to come hang. Donald's going to be shaping boards up until about 6.30. They have like a mobile shaping bay that they're going to have on site. So he'll be shaping until 6.30. I'm going to show up around 6.00 p.m. And then just hang out as long as possible or as long as anybody's interested in hanging out. So 6.30 p.m. this Friday, the Vistla store at Pacific City in Huntington Beach, right across from where they're hosting the U.S. Open. And then for today's show, for this podcast... I'm bringing you a far-ranging conversation about board building, brand building, managing growth in one small business, hunting, who is Andy Nieblis, we're going to talk about soft tops, all of this with Dave Ali of Almond Surfboards. People started mentioning Almond Surfboards as a potential guest years ago. The boards are really beautiful, the brand is really strong, um, they have a really amazing apparel Line. So Dave Ali is the guy behind all of that. And we recorded this conversation in his backyard in Newport Beach, California, over a bottle of rose last week with the ambient audio provided by the occasional gardener in the background. So uh, try to ignore that, block that out. We tried to edit around it. But um, nevertheless, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Dave. And he and I have been chatting for a while, but it was great. This is the first time we actually met in person. So Really great to make that connection. Hope that you enjoy it. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Enjoy my conversation with Dave Ali of Almond Surfboards. And I'll be back at the end of the show to sign us off. Thanks. Nice sleeping in the back of a speeding okay. oh, Or almost five o'clock in the afternoon, too. It's um, high time. Yeah. Why not you say? Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers to you. Thanks. Nice finally connecting in person. Yeah, good to be here. Um, let's start with talking about the animal. What is that? <laughs> that is the
0: American pronghorn. It is the second fastest land mammal after the African cheetah. It evolved to be that fast. Because we used to have a thing called the North American cheetah that I read about. Uh, but yeah, uh, part of my, like, rite of passage of turning 30 a couple years ago was I wanted to, like, hunt something and eat it. But part of that process was, like, two years of researching ahead of time, because if I was going to go through that process, I wanted to, like, do it myself, and I wanted to have a pretty good understanding of, you know, the the chase and the query and that involved yeah like researching and studying and like understanding what i was getting myself into but yeah it kind of accumulated with my dad and i did a antelope hunt people call them antelope but they're technically a pronghorn okay uh in wyoming two years ago it was like early october central wyoming and probably one of the most memorable trips in my whole life wow is, we got to share with my dad. We each got to do
1: it, which was Is he a hunter?
0: Not really, we'd always like we'd like shot doves growing up, like gone to the Central Valley and done that a couple times. We've done a little bit, but like he's by no means like an accomplished hunter. Okay. And it was each of our like first oh, big okay. game animal.
1: What did you kill it with?
0: A rifle that belonged to my great grandfather. Wow. That my grandpa gave me a few years ago. And so that was kind of a cool thing too. It's like my great grandpa had used that rifle on a bunch of hunts wow. and things. My grandpa had used it and then my grandpa gave it to me. So there's kind of like this lineage and I don't know, I just felt like I was kind of joining the ranks of some tradition that had occurred in my family that, you know, in 2016 or 18, or, you know, today's day and age, like it's frequently getting kind of like forgotten or dropped off.
1: Yeah. How long was the hunt? Did you stay out for a week or?
0: It was like a three, I mean, they're everywhere in central Wyoming. So it was like a three day hunt, but, uh, we each got an antelope the first day.
1: And camped at night and.
0: We stayed in like this little bunkhouse kind of thing that was like this rad old building. We had like breakfast there and then went out.
1: So my grandfather lives on a farm in Colorado and he's outdoorsy and like grew up hunting and all that sort of stuff. And my dad was raised with it a little bit but yeah. for the most part was a city boy. And so I started watching meat eater yeah. on Netflix a couple of years ago. And then Shane Dorian always talks about bow hunting and stuff. And then totally. I listened to him on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of years ago. And all they talked about was hunting. Like they didn't even talk about surfing. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, and then Mark Healy, I talked to him about it. And like, I got kind of, not obsessed, but I got interested in doing it. It's a rich subject, and it goes yeah. deep. And I'm into food. Right. And Steve Renella on Meat Eater is great yeah. about that. Like, he details... He's a chef, and yep. in addition to... So, I and was kind of...
0: Incredibly articulate. Yeah.
1: Like, totally. he's
0: such a good communicator.
1: So, I was like, I want to... I eat meat, right. and I know that that's probably the least humane version of meat to put in your body. Yeah. So, I'm totally okay. And I feel like there's certainly more humanity in having to do the process yourself of tracking the animal, killing it, you know, um, dressing it, all that sort of thing. If you're going to eat it, that's the more humane way of doing it. Right. Totally. So I definitely fantasized with the idea of organizing something like you did with your dad. And I pitched it to my dad and my dad was on board. He's like, yeah, let's do this. Um, we haven't made it happen yet. It's really just a scheduling issue for me. I I need to allocate the time for it. But you mentioned right before we turned on the mics that you've been emailing with Steve Ranella. How did that happen? So what about (laughs) (laughs) like,
0: (laughs) this is going down a whole other rabbit hole, but, uh, one of my good buddies works for a large outdoor retailer in their corporate headquarters. And he takes somewhat of a, like, we'll call it a non-consumptive stance towards the outdoors. So we kind of have like, this is like a high school buddy. So we have like this ongoing friendly debates on subjects and he's a bright guy, well-informed, but I'll always like catch little snippets on like meat eater. I'm like, Hey Greg, have you ever thought about this? Like, and I'll hit him with like an example or a story or an instance where And it comes for us, it kind of boils down to like issues of conservation being driven by scientific you know field study or emotion and you know both are at play and it's a it's a very complex subject but i had an example that i had of a story that i'd picked up on Mediator podcast that i relayed to greg and was like what about this situation and he was kind of like stumped by it a little bit and so he was like, Oh, maybe we should have like, who's this guy? Like a little curious, like whose podcast is this? What's his name? And I'm like trying to explain like Stephen Reinella, meat eater. And he's like, Oh, maybe we should have him come speak at our corporate headquarters sometime. And I was like, well, conveniently enough, he lives in your town. I'll like try to set this up. So I emailed Steve Rinella and was like, Hey man, my name's Dave. Here's this whole story. Would you ever consider going and doing a question and answer, like a speaking thing at like such and such company? And he was, he wrote back within like 10 minutes and was like, I would absolutely love to do that. Like, wow. Let's make it happen. So I was like, all right, I'm on it. So they're like, Greg, right is in like, who do I have to talk to to make this happen? So That's Greg huge. currently has a longboard going through production that I told him I'm going to sandbag until he puts me in touch with the right person to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm.
1: That's amazing.
0: <laughs> to connect the dots between the out, the like camping, hiking, outdoor industry and like the hunting industry. And I think it's maybe most palatable form in Steve's a very, like I said, like, very well educated on the subject. His understanding of the things at play go much deeper than maybe people would give the, you know, hunters credit for. Right. So I think he's probably the best person to kind of present an alternative view. If nothing more, I think he's a great person to present some alternative opinions that may or may not stick but i think it's important to have dialogue across Mm -hmm. lines where dialogue might not always occur
1: um the first thing in my notes actually relates to a lot of this when we were first started chatting i had um you mentioned that you heard me talking on a podcast about burnout and feeling jaded by surfing and just kind of taking time off from it yeah and then you related to that and you were like yeah dude i took three months off and went to the mountains of Idaho with your wife just to get away from surfing, um, you're a super busy guy. I mean, we'll get into your business background and all of that, but burnout's a real, real thing that any entrepreneur, I think, could probably relate to. And people that don't have businesses can relate as well. But how did that experience go in Idaho, first of all? Let's start there. Three months away from the ocean.
0: Good. It is... I judge it more by the kind of way I came back and the, the freshness and newness that I felt coming back. Um, yeah, it's whenever you're going to like make major life change like that, it's a complex thing, but ultimately I'm 32 and I've been doing almond about 10 years. So it's like a third of my life I've been running a small business. And I think when I put it in the terms of like, it's like high school and college mushed together. It's more than that. Like it's basically like junior high through college. It's like the amount of time I've been doing Almond. So it represents like a huge amount of like, you just change a lot. Like it's, it's, I was 22 years old when I signed the first lease to open a shop. Crazy. And it was the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And... I'd, you know, been doing boards for a little bit before that with Griff. And, uh, yeah, you just, like I was 22 in the time that since I started Allman. I've, like, gotten married, gotten my, like, master's in just small business hustling and probably an unofficial doctorate in there, too. You know, like you just develop and change so much over that period that I think it was important to kind of see what else was out there and just, like, take a little reprieve. And so, yeah, Idaho is kind of like a step away from just the busyness. It's really easy to stay busy here.
1: So what what was the uh, realization when you came back into this world or what changed from that time off?
0: I don't think I realized how much I feed off of just the excitement and the energy of what goes on at the retail store. Like the shop for us is kind of like the hub of most everything that goes on and you know I we have a shop that's two blocks away from my childhood home in the neighborhood I grew up in and people are coming in all day long and you get to like talk about boards and I still kind of get a little excited and a little like surprised maybe when people are like okay like i'm ready to order one or like okay i'll take that one i'm like (laughs)
1: some
0: with some people it's like this very long very drawn out process with other people they're just like yep perfect i'll take it and you're like oh uh yeah i've done this like hundreds of times before but yeah i'm gonna yep uh this is what i do like there's still kind of that like buzz and excitement of like okay cool like we are filling a need for you and Anyway, we can get into more of that later. But I think I didn't realize how much I feed off of that and how much I like being around it to be away for three months and be like, did we get any cool boards in from Waterman's today? And they're like, yeah, I got a great one. Like I'll text you the photos in a bit. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not even there. I don't even know like what came in this week. It's just a, it was a really foreign feeling because that had become
1: so routine. Mm surfing can become routine routine too you know not just the business aspect of it but if you're surfing every single day you certainly the um, excitement for it and the appreciation of it diminishes
0: any anything yeah. that you do does right. you
1: know I'll go through Ben's work maybe out of town where you're dining out all the time? Yeah. When I was young, dining out was a privilege. It was like a rarity totally. and we were all excited and it made, and now staying home is the privilege. It's the exact opposite, you know? That's interesting. So it's good to reset that stuff every once in a while.
0: Yeah. It It funny like this the stuff within surfing that I was interested in shifted, stepping away. Like I Interesting. I was I've historically been primarily a longboarder and then if it's if the waves are good i'll step down and ride a fish or something coming back from like stepping away from it for a minute i don't think i've ridden my longboard since january wow like yeah i've ridden my longboard since january i've been riding some mid-lengths and some smaller stuff i took the center fin out of my 66 pleasant pheasant that was trying to ride it like semi finless like I was just like really amped on finless surfing. I was just devouring whatever videos I could find online of like guys surfing finless and I it's all that's the kind of only surfing I've like cared to watch recently, hmm. which I kind of just didn't pay attention to previously.
1: Why what do you get out of surfing finless?
0: I'm not even good at it. I'm terrible. I mean, that's part of it. It's like it's kind of like taking the precision out of it. Like you're a little bit more reacting and responding to not only the wave, which is obviously always at play, but now maybe partial control of like where you are on that wave. I know I kind of equate it. It's almost like jazz. It's like, it's a little less scripted and it's just really pleasing to watch. I think
1: hmm. I always think about like, I see current writing that skim modified skim board in the last couple of years. And I'm like, great for you that you're like trying something new but goodness get on a good board like I want to see you shred I want to see I don't want to see your ability level inhibited by the equipment that you're riding right but whenever I talk to somebody who's riding an alaya or something that seems prohibitive to their ability they indicate that there's a sensation that they're getting out of that equipment that they can't experience on maybe more high performance equipment right Um, is there something with the finless that doesn't happen when the fins are set when the fins are in it
0: i think so because i still have like these two little tiny side bites and so it's like you can kind of feel as you side slip and then you kind of like recover a little bit and come back up the face and then you kind of reach this point where you like right back in the pocket and then it just feels like the board just takes off and goes down the line in a way where if i was riding it just with the fins in it i'd kind of like do a quick little bottom turn and then get back up to like kind of a higher line, and then you just naturally start kind of pumping. Right. Like that routineness of it.
1: Right. So maybe is so familiar. Yeah.
0: That when you like, oh, this is new. This is weird. And I'm go- I'm accelerating. I'm not even like pumping like I usually would at this moment. Maybe that's like recovering some sense of newness. It's
1: exactly. It's a metaphor for what we were just talking about in right. terms of going to Idaho for three months. Yeah. You know. I mean, Absolutely. I w- I was looking. The answer I was looking for was. I was hoping you were going to say something like, oh, yeah, the speed. It's so much faster because there's less friction. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. Now I'll try that. Yeah. But the reality is I think you're right because I've, I've done a bit of finless surfing too. Um, the reality is I think you're right. It's just needing to jar your experience a little bit and to reset. is might be more of what the value is in addition to speed. Um, number of th- reasons why I wanted to talk to you was – Almond is beyond just a board label. You know, Mm -hmm. you guys have certainly the retail store, you have clothing, you have all sorts of um, stuff. So that's an interesting conversation that I haven't had a lot on the podcast. And there's examples that came before you, like Rusty started out as a board builder, Hurley, Bob Hurley, you know, and they've grown into something much bigger. Um, Yours is an alternative version of those things. So I'm interested to hear about why those decisions were made in the first place, and then how you manage some of that growth. But another interesting aspect of it is you're not shaping the boards. You're not glassing the boards. You've delegated a lot of those roles out, and that's a fresh conversation for the podcast. Like I haven't talked to a lot of people that I could think of who have started out as a board builder, built – this thing, grown it into a brand, and then removed themselves to where you can actually take three months and go to go to Idaho, you know? That's a tough thing to do. So we'll get into all that. Let's start with how did you get involved with board building?
0: I came to surfing kind of at the tail end of high school, really. Like I, you know, dabbled in it as a kid, but you're playing sports and you're doing regular kid stuff. So it wasn't really till I was like 17 or 18 that I was like, okay, like I want to just surf a bunch now. And so I think a lot of my, a lot of my childhood, I kind of grew up bonding with my dad over projects in the garage, Mm. like building stuff, making stuff, you know, making slingshots and catapults. And we built a go kart and you know, like garage projects. So when you're like 18, 19 and surfing is at the forefront of, my mind i'm like dad let's build a surfboard so that's kind of where like that started was like i wanted to make a board i thought it was probably the only one i would ever do so i spent 12 months on it wow and at the time you know this is let's see i was 19 there's not a whole lot of online resources available at at that time sway locks there was a little bit of sway locks and there was like some random articles about like board building like wooden board building and things um so i spent months like looking up articles just devouring whatever information i could printing stuff out highlighting it circling it inspiration drawings and images and like basically we decided like to build a balsa board wow (laughs) no idea what i'm getting myself into but that's part of what took like a year from like start to having a finished board in hand was Wanted to make it out of balsa wood because I thought, like, okay, this is going to be beautiful to hang on the wall and it'll be, like, a cool memento from this season of life. And through that process I got to, like, go down and spend a day with Terry Martin when he was working on a couple of, like, 10-foot balsa longboards for Hobie. And he was, like, he is was friends with One of my grandparents' friends, Pete Tresselt, who's like a longtime Laguna guy. And so Pete like took me down and introduced me to Terry. And that was pretty rad. And like Josh and I have talked about that a little bit like since, but to see someone at that level. And he was like giving me tips on like, make sure to take your stringers down. Like, don't leave your stringers too high. Cause like, look, and he's like spending way more time with me than he probably should have. I'm like some random kid who's like a friend of a friend of a friend's grandson. Um, but anyway, a, upon completing that board, it was like awesome and beautiful and super heavy. And then it was like, okay, I've never actually really done two of any one project before. It's always been these like one offs. Like I want to try to make something that's actually more surfable now. So then I made myself like a five ten fish and it was like, that was like the first board I really like rode out of to death out of foam. Yeah. Um, it was a it was the uh Biofoam. Remember that stuff? There's like a company down in San Diego or something it was making like
1: Was it EPS or
0: No, it was like yellow. It was called like Biofoam and it was huh. like this really yellow foam. It tore really easily. I don't remember that. And I mean, they're not around right. anymore. Right. Right. But
1: like Like because it was a biohazard or because it was (laughs) was it was eco-friendly yeah i have no it's a questionable title you know like it could be either i'm
0: trying to remember what the company was called anyway i made this like 510 fish and then this is like two i think by the time i did that fish it was probably 2006 2007 and this is facebook is around but it's still exclusive for exclusively for college students instagram's like not even a twinkle no. in anyone's eye yet so i started a blog spot
1: i remember i had a blog spot
0: dude i met so many people through blog spot that i'm like i still know and i've like kind of come up in the industry in various ways but that was kind of like the beginning it was like i had a dumb little blog spot and i would like it's called lifeisjustswell.blogspot.com you can still look it up there's a bunch of like embarrassing pictures of me being 20 years old and met a bunch of people through that and a guy that I met on there that wanted to interview me for his blog is a photographer by the name of Kyle Leitner and Kyle let's see how do I explain this Kyle's good friend Theo Hetherington was an artist. Who had a studio next door to Clearwater Glassing, mm-hmm. and at the time Griffin was working a little bit at Clearwater, and then he was apprenticing for Bruce Jones. And Griffin tagged along with Kyle to come over to my house, and that's when I met Griffin. And he kind of made this like offhand comment of like, "Hey, man, I just I love to shape, and it seems like a you know seems like a decent guy. If you ever like." want to work on something together let me know and like fast forward to today like griffin and i have been working together for 10 years and he shapes every single almond board and has since october of
1: 2008
0: wow so yeah we're coming up on 10 years of working together
1: griffin newman kyle griffin
0: right? newman hyphen kyle
1: so um he had to be a kid at that point. Cause I was
0: 22 and he was 19. Wow. Okay.
1: And so at this point, how many boards have you actually shaped? Like
0: maybe 20. Gotcha.
1: So at that point it was very few. Yeah. And he just, so what was, um,
0: I realize I skipped like 18 steps in that story. No, no,
1: no, it's okay. We've got a million to cover, so it's okay. Um, what was the Genesis of the idea for almond? Obviously you have, he's a shaper who needs a label and wants to pursue his own project. You, what's your role in this at that point?
0: At that point, I think the first, however many boards for me, it happened to be 20 or so was like, okay, I'm still learning. I'm still discovering. I'm still doing something new. And then by like, just my personality type, I was kind of like, yeah, this is cool. But I've, this isn't my this doesn't suit me like i'm not a shaper minded for this i'm not a shaper i'm not meticulous i can't i can't do this so meeting griffin and him being like oh man like i hate doing x i hate doing y i hate doing z and i was like i love doing x y and z you know it's kind of like all right like i love stirring up trouble and getting us like into opportunities and like engaging with people and all these things and I have very strong opinions about like surfboards and brand and experiential things like I'm happy to go do that stuff if you can make badass surfboards and he was kind of like yeah. you mean I don't have to talk to customers like yes sir and so that was kind of the impetus and at the time let's see so I met him in October, 2008. I had just graduated college and I kind of thought like, I'm going to give this like almond, I almond kind of came from like me just scribbling in the margins of my notebooks in college and like shaping boards after class and going surfing, just doing regular college kid things. Um, So I was kind of like, ah, it's 2008. The economy is like in the tank. Everyone's getting laid off. Like instead of trying to jump into the job market, maybe I'll give this almond thing like a year. And see how it goes so within that year you know that's whatever when you graduate like May met met Griffin in October I signed the lease for the first store on Old Newport Boulevard in January and in March we opened Wow so in that whole year was like I guess this is like happening
1: what had you studied in Business marketing. Whereabouts?
0: Chapman. Oh, okay. Go Rare.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, where'd the capital come from to do that? I mean, obviously you don't have, you haven't built a ton That's of a boards. You haven't.
0: Right. So. So I had a job from the time I was like probably 14 or 15 all the way through college. Like I'd always worked. I'd never not had a job. And then my grandma gave me, I think like 10 grand or something like that. So I just pulled everything I had and went to the consignment furniture store and bought like bulky furniture to try to fill up. Cause our first shop on old Newport was maybe 450 or 500 square feet. Like it was not big, but I didn't even have enough money to make enough boards to like yeah. fill in the rack or we'd done like some t-shirts at that point. And basically bought some, like a, a big couch and a big desk and like things to kind of like make it feel full in there. And, got some like art from friends to hang on the wall and it was like a very like looking back on it now it's like there wasn't a whole lot of product per square foot but it like kind of felt like a living room which was kind of served as well because it was super inviting and I think surf shops had always had the reputation of being somewhat uninviting and so to walk into the shop and it kind of looks like like my mom was an interior designer so she kind of helped guide me a little bit and figuring out that whole space but Mm -hmm. you walk in you're like oh man i feel like i'm this guy's home Mm -hmm. and you kind of were i was just kind of like yeah come in like you want to talk about surfboards let's talk about surfboards so it's a very like humble beginning in terms of the early days of the shop but also invaluable like i don't think i would never change it in the sense that By opening a physical brick and mortar store, as like counterintuitive as that is in this day and age, like you're literally like planting your flag on the map and opening your doors and saying like come on in. And so much of what has occurred over the last nine and a half years with Almond has been because of that. Just like walk on in, you can have this five cents, three-dimensional experience of like the brand that we're trying to create, and you can come shake our hand and have a conversation.
1: So even at that time you viewed it as a brand that you're trying to create, it wasn't just selling almond surfboards.
0: Yeah. I think at that time I kind of looked up to like, you know, this is 22 year old brain talking, but like I looked back at like some of the Hobies and brands of the sixties and was like, okay, the surf industry obviously took this one trajectory of like surfboard builders were one thing and apparel brands were another thing. And it was very like you're kind of either or for the most part. It's like, what if we just took, what if we could like turn back the clock and just try a different model? And that was kind of the idea. It was like Mm -hmm. very simple. Like, let's just see if we can do it all. I'm like less convinced you can do it all, you know, having sure done it all these years now, but that was at least the thinking at the time
1: so we are a mere i don't know how many miles from that location three miles right mm-hmm. now from there no like one oh okay
0: yeah it's like right over by hoke hospital yeah literally in the shadows of hoke hospital so
1: so you grew up in the area i i'm just even though this is kind of a sprawling metropolis yeah there's um portions that are small communities or still feel like small communities and you grew up in that when you opened that store did you feel confident that you had enough of a local friend group from high school and college that would buy boards through that retail shop were you completely rolling the dice like what was your confidence level doing that
0: I was pretty confident cuz Newport's such a biking culture and I knew like this is the easiest way to ride your bike down the hill to get to the beach from like m- where most of my friends grew up living like we would ride by that all the time. So I was like at the very least like we're on the bike path that like all the locals take to get to the beach. Mm-hmm. So as long as we can like have a good sign out front like people will figure out that we're here. You
1: thought that just random foot traffic would keep you in business?
0: No. Not, no, not so much, but it was, like, the people I know congregate and, okay. like, use this as a thoroughfare. Got it. And I, like growing up here, like, knew a bunch of people, and I have a brother that's, like, and my, let's see, my sister's, like, three years younger than me, and my brother's, like, two years younger than that, and my friends all had younger siblings. So even if, like, my friends maybe were, like, off doing other things, like, there's still, like, the next few generations to come. Yeah. So, yeah, I was pretty confident, like, at the very least, like, they'll all want to support and wear almond t-shirts. Like, I don't know if they'll all want to spend a thousand bucks on a surfboard, but, like,
1: t-shirt's a slam dunk. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. go to lipsandads.com now that's l i b s y n ads.com
0: the fun thing with griff is he comes from a very different surfboard preference background than i do like we we aren't necessarily like interested in the same things we don't we didn't like grow up with the same like surf influences so it's this very like tug-of-war approach to all of our boards that I think in the end ultimately like benefits our customers Mm -hmm. because it's not like all 100% one or the other. And he has been a good guy to like work with and we get along really well. We have like a really similar sense of humor and like just as friends, we get along really well. So it makes tugging more over like surfboard design and he loves to like tweak with stuff. So all of a sudden there'll be like a lumberjack that comes through the glass shop where I'm like, dude, that tail is like, half an inch narrower I don't have to get out the tape I can just look at it and know that thing like Griffin's been messing with the outlines again mm. so I'll text him a picture and be like Griff what's up with this tail and he's like dude I just wanted to try something
1: like
0: <laughs> you know so and so this one guy said like he didn't think it turned good enough and I was like yeah but so and so one guy right doesn't have like final say
1: um I think so much of like, uh, where do I begin this conversation? Um, Very few board builders get into the board, get into the business with a business plan and a thorough understanding of accounting and a thorough kind of image of what their brand concept is. You know, they just start building boards with a passion. And that's great. And that um, there's a lot of success stories with that. And design revolution comes from that and all that sort of thing but as they become successful they don't have that those business kind of foundational things in place to really help manage growth so it's an interesting example your approach of like kind of having a grander vision but also seeing the potential in somebody like griffin who's a skilled craftsman and being able to kind of empower him To where he doesn't have to worry about a lot of the back end stuff is a really unique um, scenario. And it's great. And I'm glad to see it. And I think it's been uh, a lot of your success can be attributed to being able to delegate and rely on somebody else, you know. And that's the other thing is I've seen a lot of board builders grow and be unable completely to delegate. Be unable to give any creative control over to somebody else or any you know, accounting control over to somebody else at all. Right. So um, I have to commend you for your ability to be able to do that and for Griffin's ability to be able to let you do your role too, you know?
0: Totally. And some of that was dumb luck because it's not like we knew what we were getting ourselves into in the early
1: days. But to
0: your point, like, he is a very, very, very talented shaper and he's very good at what he does. That doesn't necessarily mean that he should be or needs to be good at you know, a whole laundry list of other things. And for me, I'm like, I know how I want it to look. I know how I want it to feel. I know what kind of product I want to deliver to our customers. doesn't mean you want me in the shaving bay. Like, so for us to have kind of landed at this arrangement where we can each do what we're really good at in a way that like, benefits us both. Like I can shield him from some of the crap that would just like keep him up at night Mm -hmm. and he can work on his craft. And like, he is a very skilled guy. Like there's no one I'd rather be working with. So I'm like really happy that this is like where we landed all those years ago.
1: Well, it requires a certain humility to be able to do it because I'll be honest. Not a lot of people know your name. You know, they know the name of Almond surfboards, but they don't know Dave Ali, and they don't know Griffin Newman Kyle's name. Like, so he's had to humble himself and put the name Almond first, and be able to kind of live in the shadow in that respect. And um, so that's admirable, but also it's the right business decision. You know, if you want to get customers the right equipment in a timely fashion built to a certain specification like that's what it requires a lot of the time yeah and for us the brand like
0: i guess for me personally like the brand was always meant to be bigger than one person right good and continues to be like
1: so let's talk a little bit about the brand i think um almost all surfboard companies print t-shirts but the way that that relationship all all of that stuff is outsourced right so like the tees are manufactured somewhere almost all in the same couple of places they're sent to a printer the printer screens the artwork on and then that just is just an aside to the surfboards you can also buy a t-shirt your line seems a bit more involved Um, number one what's your ambition there then how are those uh, elements of it executed you have a full line of clothing
0: yeah 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 i have a very love hate relationship with clothing (laughs) to be totally frank um, we have had, like, periods of time in the past where we've gone, like, really deep into it. Like, at one point in 2014, our men's line was 70 SKUs and our women's line was 40 SKUs. And we had, like, hired a designer from L.A. to help us design a women's line. And we got it into Madewell. And it was, like, it was awesome. And then I, all of a sudden it's, like, that season's done. And it's, like, okay, we need to start from scratch and, like, design a whole new collection for next season. And I was like, this was like news to me. I was like, what do you mean start from scratch? We have a great, you know, we have 40 awesome styles. Like why would we
1: And had you start sold, over? And had you sold through all the inventory? Like even managing that, those details of it.
0: Yeah. We definitely over produced in several categories and under produced in others, which is natural. Um, but yeah, I guess getting back to like the bigger question, like my my intention with almond was all always to kind of have a full robust brand experience and apparel kind of plays an important role in that and even from like just a very practical standpoint of having a retail store like we have to round out this retail store with something else You can't just you can't just walk into like a room full of boards and the economics are such that like the margins are way better if we can figure out how to produce it ourselves as opposed to bringing it in from someone else. And so I've kind of like, we like went really deep into the apparel a few years ago and then I kind of had this like, oh my gosh, moment where it's a lot to manage and it's very different from surfboards. Surfboards are very linear. It's like you make one, you sell one. You make one, you sell one. Customer comes in, he orders it, you build it, you call him when it's done. It's very linear and just the like scale and excess and seasonality of clothing was kind of like this is like i didn't really know what i'd gotten myself into to some degree um and i've kind of always wanted to have more of an evergreen approach to apparel in the sense of like I don't want to reinvent the wheel every season. I want to know, like, we are going to be good at these few things and we're going to continue to do these few things well. And, you know, editing yourself is hard because when you have have a brand and you have, like, a platform, you can get yourself into a whole lot of things. But being focused and edited, I think, is really important and is increasingly important as – the barrier to entry for people to do their own branded goods just keeps getting lower it's easier yeah. than ever to do that so it's more important than ever before to be really really focused
1: what is the focus and what is what are important what's important to you
0: we've kind of narrowed it down to like board shorts short sleeve button-ups flannel shirts t-shirts and then like the easy like hats coffee mugs like some of those kind of the low-hanging fruit that you just have to do as a brand
1: mm-hmm. what what i'm curious about is like is it even equitable like now that you've been doing it for that was kind of an original part of the plan and it supports the surfboard brand in terms of marketing if nothing else if people are wearing almond t-shirts maybe they'll buy almond surfboards Yeah. but with all the amount of effort put into it and the amount of time dedicated and the amount of expense is it Inequitable equitable exchange in because I think of like I look at things like outer known and it's like, you have super smart people. They hire the best people, invest tons of money and all this sort of thing. And it's still a real, real struggle with all the best people, all the best distribution channels, all the best supply chain. It's still a real, real struggle. Right. So I'm curious. Is it equitable?
0: Yes. Okay. If you can be very focused and give your product some shelf life, than I think it is. The margins are there, and if you're willing to give, if, ah, it's hard to not overproduce and not over overdevelop the line. Totally. But we so, this is maybe getting a little geeky. But I looked at our sales trends, and if we came out with a shirt like a button-up shirt in the spring, I would look at like the first six months that we had that shirt, and then I would look at the second six months that we had that shirt. And as long as the inventory held up, like the sales of that shirt would be the same, or as strong in the second six months as it was in the first. So our customer doesn't know that that shirt is 11 months old. To them, they're walking in and it's a great shirt, or they're going on our website and it's a great shirt. They're gonna buy the one they like, regardless of whether it's two weeks old, six months old, 10 months old, like. Things move so fast. Like we've been in our current retail store for two and a half years. I still get people every single week who walk in and go, "Whoa, congrats on the new space!" Like, when did you guys move here? I'm like, "Oh, actually, it was two and a half years ago." But like, time moves so much faster to me than it does to you as like a yeah random member of the community who casually visits Almond
1: and doesn't drive down Santa Ana or right is it on exactly. Santa Ana, yeah, Santa yeah. Ana,
0: but. And that's very like, that goes against how the apparel industry is typically run. It's like totally seasonal, 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 bam, bam, bam. But also that's wholesale buyers that are kind of driving that. Like we need something new, show us something new.
1: And national distribution too, you know? Right. Like are you guys, um, is there a distribution plan? Are you only available at Almond? Are you available elsewhere? We work with a few specialty, sh- specialty okay. stores. Okay.
0: It's not a huge part of our business model. We've kind of like scaled back on that front. I think being young when a buyer tells you like, Hey, next season, we want to see you come out with this style in like six different colors. And I'm like, cool. Like, hey guys, like such and such buyer said they want to see it in six colors next season. Right. And then you produce the six colors and take it back to that same buyer and they buy like two of them and yeah. like not even deep. And you're like, but we did this for you. Right. And you're like, oh, cool. Great. Thanks. Like, We took the best too. Right. So then you're like, what the heck man? Like, I'm just a kid out here trying to learn. Um, but to be honest, like. Yeah, the the direct to consumer thing as like cliche as it is to say in this day and age like is of increasing value to us because it allows us to engage directly with our customers yeah. and it does allow us to have a longer shelf life for our products. And being in 250 retail stores or surf shops with our clothing line is like not part of the business plan. Right.
1: Well, I think the conversation about the economics of it are is interesting for a number of different reasons. Let's kind of focus back on board building. Your boards are glassed at Waterman's Guild. Yep. There's listeners who have listened to this show for any period of time; they're familiar with Waterman's Guild because I had Greg Martz on and number Dave Parmenter glasses his boards there. Josh Martin; they are kind of the gold standard for go, uh, glassing boards in Orange County. Why does it make Again, with the idea of understanding the economics of a surfboard, why does it make sense for you to outsource glassing? Why not do it in-house?
0: Oh, man. For, like, every reason under the sun. Everything from, like, efficiency to cost to space to just specialization. And to be able to work with the Waterman's guys, I... I've honestly learned so much about the board building process from hanging out there like in the early days of almond i would stand in the laminating room and just make small talk with greg for hours and to be able to intimately understand the process and the things that he likes to do doesn't like to do the things that might look easy on paper but are actually really hard to execute or the things that might look really beautiful but are actually like fairly straightforward it framed it for me of like, okay, where can we bend the rules? Where can we like get creative when it comes to the look of our boards? That's not like creating unnecessary headaches for them. Mm -hmm. So the relationship with Waterman's like, I spent way more time up there in the early years as I'm like, just devouring information and like getting really familiar with the laminators and the whole process. And I think it's really shaped how we approach surfboard design from an aesthetic standpoint Hmm. because i think there's places where you need to color within the lines and there's places where you can kind of bend the lines without bending them too far
1: interesting um there's kind of been an ongoing conversation about the plight of the american board builder and this is obviously an industry that started in california um some california manufacturers have begun outsourcing manufacturing others have outsourced entirely high-end builders seem to be doing fairly well you know Mm -hmm. um what's your perspective on the situation have you first of all um run into any issues has your business suffered because of the import market and then number two do you export boards
0: oh man there's so many ways i want to approach this question um we let's work backwards yes we do export boards i still think that california culturally is the epicenter of surfboard building and there's just such a rich deep heritage there um as far as like board builders go i think it's very important and can't be overstated how important it is to be known for something I always kind of just as a consumer, like rolled my eyes at the guys who like claimed to do everything. Like I can make you a high performance shortboard. I can make you a big wave gun. I can make you a nose rider. I can make, you know, it's kind of like, I think customers are a little too savvy for that now. So I think it's important to A of all be specialized and kind of have your niche and be like, we want to be really good at this area. And then I think honestly, like not if you're going to be, really good in one area you can't be afraid to charge for it like you should unapologetically charge what you need to charge for that and I think by lowering your prices and broadening your offerings you are exchanging dollars today for dollars tomorrow in some sense granted I'm 32 years old I haven't been in this industry that long so if you're you know way older than me you can tell me to kick rocks but that's kind of speaking on behalf of my generation I think and that's how young people think in some senses so in the early days of all men like our most expensive board was 980 dollars because I thought like dude a thousand dollars like we can't charge a thousand dollars for a board now you can go to my store and find a 14 or 1500 dollars surfboard no problem you can find a thousand dollar fish if you really want to put all the bells and whistles on it and that's just the reality of The kind of boards we want to build we want to work with waterman's guild i want to like keep griffin happy and i want to be able to continue to do this so i don't apologize about needing to arrange our business in a way where surfboards are sustainable they aren't meant to be a like loss leader for us to be able to sell t-shirts or board shorts like surfboards are need to be able to stand on their own two legs Mm -hmm. and that's the way to do it I think and for us like we've tried to create a a range a range of boards that's about 16 models so that when you come in and say hey I have this but I don't have that or I'm coming down from this and I'm looking for a board that's going to help me do this better I can go great that's the board based on what you're telling me that I think will do that for you And I can confidently send you home with that board. And I don't have to feel bad about, like, if that's a $1,200 board, like, that board's going to last you decades, and it's going to get you a heck of a lot of waves. And I don't think anyone should apologize for that. Yeah. I think we're delivering on the promises we make.
1: How do you, you said that. Obviously you can't build every genre of board well. Um, How do you classify the boards that you build?
0: I've tried to simplify it recently to say we build surfboards that get you into waves early and often. And then whether you want to like laterally explore the wave face or nose ride or whatever, like whatever you want to do from that point on, like there's a few different models that'll help you do that. But like first and foremost, we want to get you into waves early and often and keep your wave count high and maximize on those like windows of opportunity you have to surf. And that doesn't always necessarily need to look like nose riding. And it's probably not going to be a whole lot of surfing above the lip, but it's like, whether you want to explore the wave face or whether you want to like explore your board from the tip of the tail to the tip of the nose, like that's kind of personal preference.
1: Mm. Um, What's interesting My experience with Allman also kind of growing up in Orange County is and being exposed to it in the last 10 years is, um, it's based in tradition. Like you said, Hobie being an inspiration for a lot of the stuff, but there's always a very forward thinking element to it. And that's a lot of the things that we just discussed in terms of the way that you just approached the brand rather than a board label and the way that you've, um, made fast adjustments along the way one thing that you've just introduced is a soft top and i was surprised to see that when i was on your website i was actually surprised to see that and then it dawned on me like oh no you are forward thinking and you're up to date with trends and so that makes perfect sense but it's a high performance soft top like we just checked it out um it is there's Wavestorm on one end of the soft top market which is completely for beginners, we've seen these other soft top brands start to incorporate bottom contours, more interesting and better uh, placed fin setups. Yours is among the most high performance versions I've seen. Is it called the R series? Exactly. Okay. What is the R series? How did, tell me the whole story.
0: So the funny thing about the R series is that in its original intent, I wasn't actually gunning to make a soft top. I was more interested in, you know, we're, we're always trying to find ways of making boards more, like, eco-friendly or oh, responsible okay. by, like, how do we substitute this, this resin for a better alternative? Or how do we substitute this fiberglass cloth for a better alternative? And like I said, like, hanging out at Waterman's and kind of trying to be, like you said, I'm not a board builder, but I'm a student of it. There's a part of me that was like, okay, what if we just got rid of the fiberglass and cloth altogether? Like, what does that look like? Because if you go way back in the like history of surfboard building, it was koa wood boards, and then it was balsa wood boards with like a varnish, and then it was balsa wood boards with the fiberglass shell, and then once you had the fiberglass shell, you're kind of like, well, we could put something much lighter and cheaper in the middle, and so that's kind of like formed the trajectory of surfboard building. But I was kind of coming from the mindset of what if we could create like synthetic balsa wood? Like, how come no one's ever thought of that? Like if, if balsa wood had been naturally waterproof, would we have ever glassed a surfboard in the first place? Hmm. So I was kind of trying to go way back and take it in a different direction. So that put me on this like three year journey of trying to chase down every lead possible to like, who can help me make, essentially synthetic balsa wood like how do we match the flex how do we match the density and I was doing all these density calculations of like okay if it's like if it's at this density and this model is such and such volume it'll weigh this much and like okay that checks out that's like within roughly 20 percent of what a polyurethane board is now so that's where that whole thing started which got me ultimately the barrier to doing anything bizarre in that space is going to be having the equipment and the molds big enough to do something as large as a surfboard so that got me talking to ty peterson from marco foam and that conversation kind of just like died as i felt like maybe i'd reached a dead end and then it got kind of resurrected a year and a half ago when they were looking at doing this mold injected surfboard that was kind of a naked surfboard that didn't need fiberglass and they were approaching it very much from the sense of like this is a foamy and I was like foamy schmomy like you guys are made a naked surfboard like this is kind of cool and so we've been in development with them for a year and a half and trying to build something that was just like totally outside the normal parameters of what makes a surfboard and granted yes it's like far more in the realm of foamy and I'm okay with that because it just happens to coincide with those being really popular right now but for me it was like I just want to make something like bizarre and functional and going back to your question about like why is this like a five foot four quad when we're traditionally kind of a more retrospective in our approach to surfboards is I kind of wanted to prove the concept with something that was sub six foot. And that just happened to be our most popular sub six foot board. And I wanted to show like, Hey, if this thing works as like a short board, as a five foot four quad, then of course it's going to work as an eight foot joy or something. Um, So that was kind of where that project came from and the benefits of that board not to get too salesy or whatever, but it's mold injected. So we have a aluminum mold that is like the exact shape of that board. So it can have like a real proper round rail on it and it can have a real bottom contour. And thanks to futures, it can have like real fin boxes and fins and the whole thing's recyclable. So if you just smash it up on the rocks or whatever, surf it into the ground over however long it takes you to surf that board into the ground, we could take it back give you a voucher for a new one strip that thing down and throw it in a wood chipper and basically like recycle that foam you can either recycle or repurpose those fin boxes, recycle the UVA deck pad. And none of that ends up in a landfill, mm-hmm. which that was kind of more of what I was trying to approach it from is like, man, this is cool. Like, what if we could make a surfboard that like, it's fun and none of it has to end up in a landfill and yeah, I don't know. I just never got, I never got that interested or like the idea of replacing the traditional materials with slightly more environmentally friendly materials just didn't really grab my attention, but doing something totally weird and wild did. Mm. And I've always tried to explain our boards as like, I want them to both function and look well in like 30 or 40 years. I've tried to take, I don't want to be fully like a throwback retro brand that's just redoing things that were popular 50 years ago. I want to make boards that are relevant today, but that I also truly believe will be relevant in two decades, three decades, four decades. And so then to to kind of complement that, this R-series board I think is something that's, doesn't have the same lifespan, but is at least not like generating a bunch of waste. Right. And because it's mold injected, there's like no, there's no foam that you're shaping off. That's gonna like, there's just no excess really. No waste. It's like a very minimally wasteful and fully recyclable project. And refining that over the last year and a half to make it something that like works and functions has been stressful and rewarding and weird, you're trying to bring something brand new to the market that you're gonna run into bumps. And at the time it was like a huge investment that there's no guarantee it was gonna work and there's no guarantee that anyone's gonna care, but I I wouldn't shut up about it. Like for a year and a half, anyone who knows me was like, you're probably never gonna make this thing, but you won't stop talking (laughs) about it. But I cared that much and I like saw the potential. And so now we're kind of in the point of launching that thing And feedback's been really good, and making them still like we're still figuring out that whole process, but
1: I'm stoked. So, what is the foam on the bottom? Is it EPS?
0: Yeah, it's like a variation of EPS foam, and it's just okay, dense and durable. Just more
1: dense EPS foam that doesn't take on water. Yeah, so okay, closed cell, and. The construction is different though beyond that the construction is different than other soft tops I've seen in that there's two stringers in it as well. Do you want to explain that and then what is the deck? so
0: The first prototypes we did we did a single stringer down the middle and we realized that just didn't give it the like drive and projection that we wanted so after riding those first few protos we redesigned it to have two stringers that are an inch apart in the nose, seven inches apart in the tails. So they kind of flare out to give the corners of that kind of big wide squash or square kind of Z tail as much support as possible so that that board does have the drive that it needs. And yeah, that was kind of like part of the workshopping of it all. Like when you're dealing with a mold injected surfboard, it just changes everything. We're kind of like relearning board design because this, the construction is just so different and the EVA deck pad was kind of a way of just simplifying it like to where you don't need to wax it you can use your same futures fins like let's just try to make this as like simple and straightforward as possible and yeah it's been a very interesting thing to explore and just relearn how a surfboard is made
1: so um That the stringers, by the way, you can't see visually. They're embedded and then that deck pad goes over them. So there's no visual of the stringers. But even
0: if you peel the deck pad off, they're buried in the foam. Okay. Like they are floating on pins inside the mold. It's basically like a giant waffle iron that shuts. And those things are floating in the middle and so you have like perfect contact around the whole stringer but yeah unless you cut it open you won't see it
1: and then to give less or listeners kind of a primer you mentioned foam mold injected foam polyurethane surfboard blanks are made in a mold so they're also made mold injected and that's why the cell structure is so tight when you're putting that much um, condensed pressure into a mold and it expands you know it just stays real tight eps There are some EPS blanks that are made in molds, but there's also a lot of EPS that is just made in a large block, and then people wire cut it, and when it's made in the large block, the cell structure isn't as tight, because you're injecting it, and it's a large space, a large cavity. Cell structure isn't as tight, so this small mold of five foot, what is it? Four. Five Five foot four, right. So you can kind of keep the cell structure real tight, more akin to polyurethane, not as tight, but akin to that and get um denser while still being light and more consistent flex pattern predictability and all that sort of stuff um the question i have for you is you make that model in pu as well polyurethane
0: yeah so for the last like seven or eight years that's been our most popular sub six foot board model the secret menu
1: so what is the difference between a 5-4 secret menu made out of polyurethane versus a 5-4 secret menu r series made out of this soft top so the
0: double stringers go a long way towards giving that board some like kind of drive and projection off your back foot because the benefit of that board is it's so small but it packs quite a bit of volume it's like 36 and a half liters so your back foot is right over the fence. So you got to drive that board forward and it's like turning into forward momentum. The thing you can't replace without fiberglass is just the flickiness of it. Okay. Um, we have, I have it in my office actually, the, the master that we use to base the mold on. We handed them like a physical board and a shape 3D file. And we're like, this is what we want. Um, So the one I've been riding, the fiberglass one, is so easy to serve. It's a lot of volume, it's very flicky, it's very responsive. These boards, because it's foam, it just doesn't have that same like immediate poppiness, but it has this very like fluid drive to it that emulates a real board more than, you know, any other foamy or soft top that I've personally ridden.
1: Is there a weight difference between the PU and the soft top version?
0: Not much. I'll have to reweigh it now that we've added the double stringer, but it's almost negligible in terms of the
1: weight. Interesting. Um, what's the price point for the soft top?
0: Uh, it starts at three hundred and sixty bucks. Okay. So for us, it kind of serves as like just fills a very different need, where it just invites more people to the brand that maybe. Are like, yeah, I like almond, but $1,200 for a longboard or whatever is like more than I'm ready to spend. So it just kind of like makes us a little more welcoming to a broader audience.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, the conversation about how the soft top market will affect the hardboard market was a thing for a while where people were concerned about it. And it's kind of demolished the entry level end of the hard top market, you know, like. Everybody starts on a wave storm nowadays, but what I've found is that it hasn't hurt the the hard top market. It's just in addition to. People do buy soft tops, but not in place of a hard top. It's just in addition to. So, and at that price point, you know, you can do it, or people can do it. Yeah, we have not seen thus
0: far. Granted, it's very early. We've not seen the introduction of a foamy board. Hurting or undercutting the sales right. of our real surfboards. Right.
1: And by the way, again, I'll restate it. Yours look like the most high-performance soft tops I've ever seen. Um, will you be able to surf it at Blackball Newport? So, I think as a lifeguard by lifeguard, like
0: judgment call, I have heard that finless during Blackball, guys having success. Oh, okay. I think once you put fins in it and start surfing it like properly, you'll probably draw their attention. Hmm. Um, I I don't know. They, they keep changing the rules on like, what's black ball appropriate because everyone keeps trying to like just undershoot what's black ball appropriate. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily market it as like, this is a black ball beater, but I think if you're like surfing it finless and just goofing off, like it's a good possibility you'll be okay.
1: Right. Um, I'm curious about how team writers work. I've noticed you've been building boards. Firstly, yeah. I want to have a conversation about Andy Neblis. Heck yeah. You've been building a couple boards for him. Who is this guy? Showed up in the last year, I'd say out of nowhere, I felt,
0: and hey, he's killing it. So I'd love to hear people say that because we've been making boards for Andy since he was 14. And no I think way. he's 22 now. So we've oh been building gosh. boards for Andy for a long time. And, appreciating his surfing for a long time so to see him being recognized on a broader scale is so rewarding Not, I don't think I can claim that I feel like a proud parent because like I don't have that level of like depth with Andy but he is such a rad kid and we've been working with him for so long that to see him having videos posted by surfer and posted by stab and to go win the duct tape in Spain and Dude, the kid's been on a crazy run. He did—I'm trying to get this right. He did Sardinia, which is an island in the Mediterranean off of Italy. Came home for a couple of days. Went to Mexi Log Fest. Came home for a couple of days. Went to Spain. Won the duct tape in an amazingly stacked final with He, Nost, Ryan Birch, Tyler Warren. It's like there's no, there's not four loggers. I'd rather watch surf than those four guys comes home, goes to New York, comes home. Where did he go after that? He was just like, bam, 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 nonstop. And the attention he's gotten has been awesome. But to rewind, we've been building boards for Nathan Adams since like almost day one of Almond. In the earliest days of Almond, I met Christian Walk and he's like, hey, you gotta meet this guy, Nate. He's like such a good surfer. He totally fits your aesthetic, totally fits your style of boards so we started building boards for Nathan and he was kind of the first, like just really incredible surfer that we built boards for. And he kept coming in and being like, dude, there's this kid named Andy. You gotta like, we gotta sponsor him. We gotta sponsor him. He's epic. Like Andy's mom, single mom, she would like drop him off at Doheny in the morning with a sack lunch, go to work in the summer and like come back and pick him up when she was done. Like he would just like live at Doheny. And he's always just kind of had this like very playful, very creative, very kind of carefree approach to longboarding that is so magnetic and original and genuine that people like really respond well to his surfing. So I've been like a diehard Andy fan for a long time. And it's been in this last year where people are like really, really finally exposed to his surfing I think for the first time and I couldn't be happier for the kid. He's a freak
1: show. He's, he's so amazing.
0: Even in high school contests like he would like turn around and be going parallel stance backwards, grabbing rail trying to get barreled. And like he may or may not make it out and then he'd if he did make it out, he's like twirling and spinning and running back to the nose and then kicking out like I don't know that he always got the best results in high school surf contests, but people would just come out of there and be like, this kid is crazy. He like, doesn't
1: need to be in a contest. Like right. you can't even process what he's doing. Right. Riding the board upside down. Right. On the bottom of the board. You know, like it's bizarre. But it's amazing to watch. And his his um agility, like he's a cat. Yep. You know, he just gets into these Weird positions, and he always finds his way out of them. It's just really interesting to watch, contortionist kind of level stuff. And that's
0: what—that's what I think makes really good, specifically longboarding, but surfing in general, is the guys who make it look really easy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And Andy's able to pair making it look really easy with trying really wild, inventive stuff simultaneously. I heard a story from Mexi Logfest where it's a point break. So like every wave is pretty much being ridden because there's a bunch of good surfers there. So there's not a lot of unridden waves and a wave goes unridden and Andy's paddling out and he, while paddling out, grabs his board, spins it around, so now he's going fin first and he paddles up, let's see, he paddles up the face of the wave, fin first, stalls at the top, hops to his feet, and surfs down the wave and because he's standing on the nose the tail swings around so now he's surfing fin first on the wave and surfs like fin first for a second and then you know the board catches and swings back around and so now he's riding like normal again and he runs to nose and gets a nose ride, then runs back and just surfs the rest of the wave as though nothing happened. And he literally never paddled towards the beach. He just paddled at this thing, stalled at the top of it and then slid back down backwards. And no one got it on photo or video, but I heard like two or three separate accounts of people being like, dude, you would not believe Andy just did the craziest thing I've ever seen someone do outside the
1: box completely.
0: I don't know where it comes from. It's just, that's his personality. And he's so low key. He's like, so polite, such a sweetheart and just creative as all get out.
1: What's hilarious to me is that you said he's 22. He looks 38. He <laughs> looks like it's nine. He looks like it's 1976 and he's yeah. 38 years old. Yeah. Like he's, his look is comedy. So yeah. in high
0: school, he shaved his head into like a Friar tuck. No way. bald spot for extra credit. And like, California history or something. So he had a full like bowl cut with a bald spot on top, Friar tuck haircut in high school for extra credit, and he just rocked it f- until it grew back out. Is he insane? Like no, when you talk to him,
1: who is he? What is he? Super, is he normal?
0: Yeah, super normal, super sweet. Like he was so young when we started making boards, his mom would make him write us thank you cards. So like every time he came and traded one in an old board and picked up a new one, he would like mail us a handwritten like dear almond guys like thank you guys so much you make the sickest boards like thank you so much for supporting me you love andy like every time and he's like not there's a lot of like interesting characters you're in this world where you're like oh man that's like kind of a hard guy to hold a conversation with he's like not that guy he's not like he's not that out there where you can't he's just like a really personable really sweet genuine guy
1: hmm He's not as, like,
0: eccentric as you'd expect.
1: Eccentric in the water, but just. Yeah, eccentric
0: in the water, but, like. Interesting. Totally relatable on land. Is he on Quicksilver? Quicksilver originals, yeah. Just
1: recently, though?
0: No. uh, Fuzzy. Do you know Fuzzy? No. Oh, he's a great guy. Uh, He does quick originals, like, all the, like, old scalloped trunks. Uh, He signed Andy to Quicksilver, like, uh, I don't know. It was probably, like, five years ago. Nost called me one day and was like, Hey man, like, do you have Andy's number? Fuzzy was asking for it. And I was like, well, Fuzzy wants Andy's number. This is interesting. So I gave it to him and yeah, he's on like rainbow Vaughn zipper, Quicksilver originals, captain Finn and almond.
1: But does he even put Quicksilver logos on his board?
0: Yeah. Like the <laughs> old, the really old, like mountain script-y and wave, mountain wave yeah. one where it's like not the red and white one, like the,
1: I, I honestly don't think I've seen it. Like I, I saw Chad Wells, team manager, post a photo with Andy like before he went to Spain and won that duct tape. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I guess they just signed him. But I had never in the last year that I've seen Andy footage, I hadn't seen a Quicksilver logo on his board. Um, yeah, It's,
0: uh, it's discreet, it's wherever discreet. it is. It's yeah. such a big board, I think it hides yeah, easily. Yeah, <laughs> true.
1: Um, what surfer would you like to work with?
0: Oh, curveball.
1: Um, like who do you watch that you think is interesting and Jordan Ronan?
0: I think that's the name. Western Australia kid, Finless. Guy. Yeah, he's probably like my favorite surfer to
1: watch. He's super interesting to watch.
0: The speed and like when he that guy does a bottom turn, like such a small portion of the board is in the water, and just so much power and so much control in such a, like, insane finless circumstance. He's, like, the first guy that comes to mind.
1: Do you, considering your interest in finless surfing, is there any, um, do you have any finless almond models?
0: No, but we, so, you know, I was talking about I took the center fin out of my Pleasant Pheasant. Yeah. Uh, one of our, like, friends slash, like, quasi-team riders, we have very, like, casual relationships with our like quote-unquote writers but um jack martin kid that lives in santa barbara he got so on board with the idea that he had griffin do him a pleasant pheasant with no center box so it has the single tab side bites that he can take in or take out but there's just no center box at all
1: are the um edges on the board different or are there channels or anything
0: no dramatic channels it's like a slight double concave and then like Maybe a, I I have to ask Griff. Kind of some of the so much of that lands on the sander whether there's like yeah. that much more edge in the tail. Sure. But um, yeah, not a ton of like variation with that thing.
1: Because the boards that I've seen Jordan Roden riding do definitely have a lot of different bottom contours than a normal right. shortboard would. Totally. Yeah. Or a normal. I don't board. think we're I don't think we're equipped to make boards for him. Yeah.
0: I just think it's surfing is sick. It totally is. Yeah.
1: Um. What media do you follow? We had this conversation when the mics weren't on. Um, How closely do you follow WSL? Let's start there.
0: I don't follow WSL all that much. I went to the Founders Cup. Oh, you did? Because I was helping my friend Scott Richards sell his Slightly Choppy Flags. Okay. Um, The retail store has kind of become a rad avenue for us to help sell rad products from just incredibly talented friends and Scott's one of them. And so he asked me to help be his wingman or actually like enthusiastically volunteered myself to be his wingman for that event. And I actually thought the girls surfed more interestingly during that event than the guys did. The guys was like kind of predictable, like a lot of top to bottom, top to bottom. The girls were a little more lateral and a little more fluid. Hmm. And I know Sage a little bit, just from the Slow Tide Guys. Do you know that brand Slow Tide? Yeah. The beach Towels. So Kyle Spencer's wife, Alana, kinda travels the tour with Sage. And so like seeing her and Lakey surf that wave, I was kinda like, dang, like I actually like watching you guys surf this potentially more than the guys, with a few exceptions of a couple of really good waves by a few dudes. But so I always want to see Sage do well. So I'll kind of like keep tabs via Instagram on like how Sage is doing. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, like, I don't have a huge vested interest in any one surfer.
1: What about competition at large?
0: No, it's like, don't if you don't care. have a vested interest, it's like in sports. Like if you have a team, you're it for your team or yeah. whatever. Like, I don't know. I, the surfing doesn't really influence what we do in the surf space. Yeah. And I don't have, like, a personal connection to any of the competitors on tour. So I don't have a real, like, motivation to yeah. keep up with it. Like, I, I listen to you and Chaz talk about it. I'm like, okay, oh, cool. I can, like, respect that. And I, like, 5% know what's going on. but.
1: It's interesting. I was talking to somebody just a day or two ago about the um, WSL's, like, viewership. Right, Because they transition transition to Facebook and there's right. a viewer counter. Yeah. And we were like, man, how many viewers are there watching the WSL? And it seems to be a shockingly low number. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that number is aggregated or regional, it's still a low number. No matter how you quantify it. Um, and I was like, you know, it turns out, I think, that not that many people... Like, among all the surfers in the world... My, my initial thought was that like, oh, yeah, 80% of all surfers in the world care about pro-competitive surfing, right? And they all yeah. watch the WSL just like I do, just like all my friends that I grew up with riding shortboards do and all that. And it's like, no, now that I've really kind of taken the temperature of it, talked to a lot of listeners around the world about it, I'm thinking, no, I don't think that many people actually care about who wins what contest, um there's a devout group that definitely do but not nearly as large as what i thought it originally was from the surfing community so it's interesting i mean you're validating my my thoughts on that you know and i'm grinning like
0: ear to ear because i'm like trying to think of like some explanation or reason why that is but i don't know if i know the answer to that yeah because it's not like the surfing is not compelling i can totally respect it and i see it and i'm like oh like i know what a good turn is from a great turn Mm -hmm. but i don't like i said i don't have like a personal vested interest in any one person's success like if i yeah knew more of the guys or if i was affiliated with one of the brands i would be like all right like we got to root for our guy sage yeah sage is my girl like i met her like three times but i'm like (laughs) yeah sage like i want to see you kill it
1: right that's interesting. It's fascinating to me. Um, by the way, the detail about the women surfing, lateral surfing being more kind of enjoyable to watch. The wave is deceptively not high performance. Right. Well, or wasn't when they ran that event. I know they've made adjustments to the machine. Yeah. But when I surfed it in November, it was like, it isn't that high performance. It's barreling the whole time. But it. If you look at even the guys, they're not blowing the tail out on every top turn the way that they would at lowers or snapper or something like that. But they're, like you said, going vert, Mm -hmm. but they're not able to blow the tail out because it's a soft lip. So ultimately the vert turn doesn't look that rad. And then the women, on the other hand, choosing to surf more laterally fits the style of wave better. So I think when people watch it, again, previous to the last couple of months that that they've made adjustments people watched it and they were like oh it's barreling so it's high performance but it's like no 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 it barrels at a section but all the rest of the lip itself is soft and you can't it doesn't push you back really
0: and you could see like i mean those guys surf amazingly well but they would go and they'd hit the lip once and then they'd go and try to give it a little more on the next one and then they would like try to give it a little more on the third one. And by the time you're, like, trying to get the fins out and blow the fins out, like, that wave's going without you. And so I think a lot of guys got caught because, like, you try to give it a little extra mustard on that, like, third hit, and the wave's gone.
1: And that's when the the, barrel picks up, too.
0: Right, and you're caught in the whitewash, and you're toast. So there's a lot of guys who, like, got left behind trying to just give it a little extra something. Right. And, yeah, definitely, like it
1: wasn't it wasn't able to be surfed that hard right that and then after the barrel there's a section that guys could throw an air off of you know but that's it yeah. at that point um interesting so back to the other question what media do you follow at this point uh, are yeah. you subscribing to any magazines which websites do you look at or do you
0: i get the surfers journal and I typically read that in chunks, like we have it at the shop. So I like kind of read it in small, bite-sized pieces. And really, you know, I appreciate the writing quality of that. Sure. Instagram is obviously a no-brainer. I listen to podcasts for sure, yours being one of them, but a lot of like NBA gossip podcasts <laughs> I'll go through phases like right now, like summertime, like all the like NBA free agency stuff. I'm like, Oh, I'm like so backlogged on surf splendor. Cause like, I got to know what Bill Simmons is talking about and like the latest NBA That's gossip. Amazing. So then I got to do a little catch up. Um, but I devour podcasts like pretty regularly.
1: We always kind of hear shapers saying that nobody gets rich from board building and that it's really just a labor of love. Do you view that what you've created with Almond has been a success thus far? And then also, um, what do you need to achieve with Almond to where you would feel like this level of investment has all been an equitable exchange for your your workload? So to bundle those two questions together,
0: Almond has always been bigger than one person. So yes, I'm like the owner founder of almond, but the reality is almond has created opportunities that extend well beyond just me. Um, and that goes, you know, Griffin's ability to shape boards and hone his craft is a very obvious example of that. Beyond that, like being able to bring in products from friends, and give them an audience and a platform and a physical brick-and-mortar retail store to kind of help them realize their dreams is like a very rewarding part of it and something that I kind of have been reflecting on more as I look at the last nine and a half or ten years of doing this. From a personal standpoint, it's it's not like lucrative by any means to be building surfboards, doing a retail store, doing a small apparel line. Um, I think the like foamy board thing was uh, me being a little bit more willing to kind of like put more chips in the table and be like, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk on this. We've been pretty safe for nine or 10 years. Like this, this feels a little more risky with potentially a little more upside. And I've tried to be pretty cognizant of like our, product map of like you know you have everything ranging from like a $12 coffee mug all the way up to a $1,500 surfboard and like what's your distribution of products within that realm that kind of makes a natural balance where between the retail store the online store a little bit of international distribution a little bit of domestic wholesale like you can kind of piece together like a decent amount of business across that whole spectrum But in order for, like, Almond to feel like it was a, or is a worthwhile investment, like, I think there's, like, the financial implications of that. And, you know, as I get older and responsibilities as, like, a husband and member of a family, like, continue to grow, like, those come more to the forefront. But then also as kind of a contributor to the community, like, we talked about it at the beginning, but, like, I have a physical space in the neighborhood I grew up in that dozens of people come through every day so we've interacted with thousands of people over the course of 10 years and hopefully contributed to their experience whether it be like directly related to surfing or otherwise and part of me has to be like okay with and fulfilled by the idea that we are contributing to the community in that way and the financial stuff like if you're just chasing the dollar it really affects the decisions that you make and I don't want to be like chasing a quick buck I don't want to be like you know I don't want to be like frivolous with this opportunity that we've been given or this like situation that we've created or any of that But at the same time, I also have to also recognize the kind of, like, more intangible benefits that and just byproducts of almond. So, yeah, do I want to make more money next year than I made last year? Like, absolutely. Like, that that goes without saying. Um, And I hope to continue to do that. I hope to continue to grow our surfboard business grow our phone board business I hope that if the reception of this new phone board is good that we could do another model and then down the road we could do a third model and we could kind of be hitting on a broader spectrum and bringing more people to the brand but I think our responsibility and our duty is to our customers and my responsibility and my duty is like to my wife and to my staff and I've got to try to balance all of those things as I look to make these decisions and I can't leverage the future for today, and I can't leverage too much of today for this like someday payoff that's right. coming. You know, it's really easy for entrepreneurs to be like, "Oh, I'm just putting it all back into the business because someday, it's, you know, we're gonna get acquired and it'll all be worth it." And it's it can't be either. It's got to be a little bit of both. And I'm still learning what that looks like, and things that I thought five years ago were maybe the path maybe have since proven not to be the path and you know it's it's constantly evolving the world's changing fast like faster than it's ever changed and as things continue to play out for almond i think the common thread will be like how are we delivering the most value to our customers while staying true to the vision of what we want this brand to be while also unapologetically like this is a business and we need it to be viable and I want to see this industry thrive and I don't mind charging what we need to charge to prove that you can if it helps elevate the whole industry. And I think there's a good long-term prognosis for people who are willing to commit to the vision and unapologetically just like do it in the way that it needs to be done to make it last
1: what would you adjust about your current position
0: if anything i want to double down on our commitment to make high quality surfboards that last and so like we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but like there's a temptation to want to cut corners and want to kind of cheapen yourself or cheapen your product in order to appeal to a broader audience. And I think that's kind of where like that. I didn't want to do that. So introducing a complimentary line of foamy surfboards allows us to take our regular surfboards and not only keep them at the like standard that we've set out, but even elevate that further. So my ideal situation in the coming years would be like, To push the limits of how do we make a surfboard that's not only going to last 30 or 40 years but 60 or 70 years that's going to function and look beautiful for like generations to come because i want to make a product that has like genuinely lasting value that's an heirloom i want to be passed down i we started this whole conversation i went on a hunt and a hunt to wyoming to go after an antelope with a Rifle that my great-grandfather used, like, that means something profound to me. So I want to take that same approach when it comes to building surfboards. I don't want to build disposable, temporary surfboards. I want to build stuff that's going to be passed down and that I want some kid to be like, oh, this was my great-grandpa's board. Right. And I love this thing. And it means so much to me when I paddle this thing out. So whatever we have to do to serve that end and to be able to do something that's like kind of more of a gateway to that, I think gets us there. So that's kind of, what's going to drive a lot of our decisions in the coming months and years.
1: Do you ride many boards um, other than almonds?
0: No, not usually. Um, I've pretty much been riding just the R series, secret menu because i have so much like emotional investment in it that i'm like i have to ride this thing and then i'm riding an 80 joy because that's potentially off the record the next model that we would look at doing Mm. it's on record record. it's on record (laughs) uh that's probably the next board we'll look at doing is like an eight foot joy because it just fills so many needs for so many surfers so those i've kind of been bouncing between those two things um but i do have an answer to the who's who else's board I would want? Yeah. To
1: ride. Yeah, if you could order any board from anyone on the planet, what would you order and from whom?
0: <laughs> this is going to sound really dumb. I not this isn't done dumb. I I'm not apologizing for my answer to this.
1: My answer to this. I'll is, cut it out. So, I'll cut that qualifier out. Thank you.
0: Yeah. If I could ride and own anything from another shaper, I want the INT John Wagner Bluegill. That thing looks so
1: fun so it's a soft top
0: yeah it's like a J- john Wagner did a collaboration with int to make this like his like bluegill alaya foam board but as like a soft top
1: oh and so
0: it's like an alaya outline but it's like got a little more volume to it and it just looks really fun
1: i rode one you did yes that's my, what i want <laughs> my buddy so my buddy had one it's the only version of an Alaya that I've ever ridden. Yeah. Um, although I did order one recently and it was challenging. I wrote it Southside Huntington. It's just challenging to ride. You got to stay so low and For you got to sure. take off on the right wave too. the wave. You um, instinctually shy away from a wave that's like critical that's Uh breaking like critically because you just think oh i don't have fins and it's a soft top and i want to just take a mushy wave but you never can get the rail to grab on a mushy wave so what you need to do is take off right under the lip on something that's more a wave like newport basically rather than huntington shit yeah, and you then talk
0: me out of it. I'm so I'm like the worst late takeoff under the lip guy. Yeah. I'm like roll into that thing when it's just forming.
1: You need like a lot of kind of contour to the wave and like to set that rail to get going fast cuz the speed gives you stability. Right. And then you want to set the rail instantly so that you have like a you know drive. And so the board was interesting like I was sussing out all these details wave after wave after wave and getting discouraged kind of um but i was intrigued enough to order an actual alaya now you know so i'm i'm gonna give it a shot
0: is that the guy you were talking about on the yeah,
1: pod morningwood surfboards yeah, yeah. on oahu nice yeah um interesting good answer i mean considering I like,
0: it's like the most unique thing that's not something we could just well, like hey griff could you shape me like a this real quick it's yeah like, that's you have to, super
1: interesting yeah but also, it fits your um, interest in not only finless, but also soft tops. So that yeah, makes sense. the two. The answer makes sense. Um, well, you know the final answer, or the final question to every interview is just, what was the last board that you rode? The last? There's waves right now. So. I know there
0: is waves right now. I surfed a couple days ago in Laguna with Griffin. And Pete and Drew from North Menswear down in Laguna, we went down to Laguna, and we we're just pulling into closeout barrels on the little foamy soft tops. Oh, okay. And that was my last surf.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. We should also mention um, what was being consumed. Maybe listeners could hear the glug of the bottle into the wine glass. Um, Joseph Carr, Josh Sellers, 2016, Rosé. Thank you for that. Was that a Trader Joe's purchase? sprouts oh really
0: i remember who you were talking to but you were going on about rosé and i was like oh josh oh it was with you and josh yeah
1: i saw him this morning oh that's right we had a w- long wine conversation this morning right. actually the fact
0: that you guys are both like wine guys was kind of a, like curveball but i What's, figured if you were coming over it's only appropriate
1: well thank you i've seen it at traders too um the main reason I wanted to talk to Josh Hall was just to chat wine with him. I'm like, we should probably discuss board building as well, but let's chat wine. Um, he recently proposed to his now fiance nice. in Spain. Congrats, were, Josh. Yeah. They were in the Basque and, um, he's really a fan of Spanish wine. So we were talking today about Cava, which is like Spanish sparkling wine. And, um, yeah, it's a whole, whole different conversation, but at any rate, this was very good. Thank you for, um, splitting the bottle with me it is now empty absolutely. half a bottle each absolutely all right dude thank Talk you to me thanks for coming yeah thank you take care as i was leaving dave's home He offered an Almond R Series, his performance soft top that we were talking about. He offered it as a giveaway to support the podcast network. So any financial donations that come in in the month of August will be entered to win that board. If you're a monthly donor, you're already entered to win, and if you want to become a donor, you can set up a monthly donation or just do a one-time donation at surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. I just sent Donnie Brink a bunch of audio gear for his show, Swell With My Soul, so those are the kind of expenses that dollars help cover. You can find everything that Dave and I discussed in this episode on SurfSplendorPodcast.com. All the beautiful almond surfboards glassed by the Waterman's Guild, the Andy Neblis footage, images of that R-series soft top, as well as a link to almondsurfboards.com and their social feeds. There's also a comment section if you'd like to leave feedback or a note for Dave. I will be back next week with episode number two of Creators and Innovators featuring Christine Brailsford Caro of Furrow Surfcraft. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the US Open. Hopefully I'll catch you on Friday evening at 6.30 p.m. at the Vistla store in Pacific City. Until then, this is David Scales. Glad to be back after that brief hiatus. I hope that you uh share a couple of waves and shred on. Thanks for listening.